Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter number 15. I wasn't sure I should have sung with the choir the second go-round after singing in the first service and then preaching and then singing in the second service. I might be whispering by the time we're done. But I don't have to preach tonight. Brother Keith's got that covered, so we're in good shape. I did want to say thank you to the choir. They, many of them usually are in this service, but many of them got up early uh, to come to church for the early service so that they could sing for that service and for this service. I appreciate their efforts immensely. I know it was not a convenient thing for them to do, but I certainly very much appreciated it. It's one of the things about the split services and then the evening being the Sunday school time, it's in that process of Sunday morning that it's hard to get everybody here and to ask them to consistently come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to uh, sing and to play and to do those things in the early hour. But I very much appreciate them being here, and I hope that it was a, a joy to your heart and that it glorified God. Genesis 15 is where we are. We're studying still in the life of Abraham, walking with God, and in particular, Abraham's walk with God. Last Sunday, we looked at faith in surrender. This morning, we're looking at faith in stewardship. Let's read one verse. We'll pray, and then we'll jump into the preaching this morning. The Bible says in Genesis 15 and verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Father, help us, I pray, this morning as we gather around your book, as we study your word, as we learn to know it, and we learn those who lived it. As we study this man, Abraham, may we understand who he is and just how we see ourselves in him. I thank you for his faith. Last week, Lord, we looked at the surrender that is required. If there is one here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they too by faith must surrender to Him, confessing that they are sinners and receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior for their sins. That is the hope of salvation. But this morning, Lord, as we turn our attention, we see that the life of faith does not end there at salvation. It begins. I pray this morning that we would see this truth and see what it means to steward or to manage, to take care of that which you have given to us in this salvation. Bless us, I pray this in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. A steward, I put in your notes, is a manager. That's all the Bible word means for steward. In fact, the word itself comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 2 where Paul says to the Corinthian believers... Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That word steward is ekonomos, which means economy, or one who handles a household, a manager of affairs. And so when we come to this this morning, we see that in last Sunday's message, Abraham was saved by faith, but that salvation had to come through surrender to who God was. This morning, we're going to see that from that starting point, the rest of the Christian life takes off. And that really is the way it is. And you say, what do you mean by that? A lot of Christians look at their Christian life or they look at salvation as the finish line. 
like they're going to run a race and get to their whole life and some point, somewhere, ask Jesus to save them from their sins and that that's the culmination of it all. But can I tell you from the Word of God, that's actually the starting point, not the finishing point. It's where it begins, not where it ends. And what we find in Abraham is this is true. He has surrendered by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and now he's surrendered, I should say, by faith to the covenant and the promise that God made to him. And now we find that there is a stewardship. There's a way in which we manage the life that God has given to us. Faith, we might say, that surrenders becomes a faith that must be stewarded or managed. And it must manage all that God entrusts to us. Abraham did that. Abraham was asked to manage the covenant that he had trusted in, the God that he had trusted in. He, Abraham, was asked or told by God to guard and use the blessing that had been brought into his life. Salvation for us is the beginning of who we are in Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. Faithful Christians, however, are mindful that all that they have comes from the Lord, and that they are to manage all that God entrusts to them in this life for His glory. In chapters 13 through 17 of Genesis, now that's a big range, I recognize that. That's a lot to cover in a sermon, and some of you are thinking, oh man, why was this the Sunday that we visited church? Why was this the Sunday that we couldn't be out sick? You're not going to be disappointed today. We will make it through the five chapters with very little hesitation. We're going to walk through them fairly quickly. But what we find is that in these five chapters, there are stories of stewardship. There are stories of how Abraham began to manage the life that God had given to him. And they are instructive for us. There is a life that we are to manage or steward for God's glory. He's given you salvation. Now, what are you going to do with it? Genesis chapter 13 is where we will begin. If you turn back there, I'm going to do a pretty broad overview in the introduction, and then we'll get into the preaching points this morning. I think it will help us understand the totality of Abraham's stewardship. In Genesis 13, the story of strife begins. There is a life of faith that is blessed by God, but there is a story in verses 1 through 13 that tell of strife between Lot and Abraham, in particular, Lot and Abraham's herdsmen. The substance, the cattle, the goats, the sheep, all that they possessed was now at a, a point of contention between two faithful souls. In verses 14 through 18, there is the story of God's particular promise of the land. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis 13, beginning in verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, After that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from whence thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise. Walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. From Genesis 13, we come to Genesis chapter number 14. Again, there is a lesson in stewardship in this chapter. In verses 1 through 13, Lot, along with the kings in the region surrounding him, are captured. In verses 14 through 24 of Genesis 14, Abraham goes and rescues Lot and those kings from their captivity. 
In the process of that rescue, Abraham tithes of the increase to the king and the priest of the Most High God. Look in verse number 18 of chapter 14 in Genesis. The Bible says, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of peace, brought forth bread and wine, two symbols of Christ when he was on this earth, bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. The phrasing there is he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. In chapter 15, we find the stewardship moves, if you will, out of relationships, and it moves into more of the aspects of internal or personal righteousness. In chapter 15, in verses 1 through 7, God promises Abraham an heir of his own lineage, his own loins, we might say. Abraham asked God for proof of the promise. We will look at that this morning in verse number 8. You'll might, you might want to mark and look at that verse because it's a wonderful question. What proof do I have is essentially the question Abraham asks. God teaches Abraham in chapter 15 that the internal heart of worship is one of continual attendance to the sacrificial offering that has been made. Look in verse number 9 of chapter 15. The Bible says there, And he said unto him, now this is God speaking to Abraham, Take me an heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. By the way, these would all be the animals that in Exodus 400 some years later, when Israel left, they would be able and told to sacrifice to God in the sacrificial offering system. We keep reading in verse 10, And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls, now it's not these two birds that he killed, but literally the fowls, the carrion fowls of the earth, came to pick at these dead carcasses, Verse 11 says, And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verses 12 through 16 tell a story of prophecy to Abraham from God of what would happen to his people, his lineage. They would go into bondage into Egypt. And in verse 17, we see the culmination, if you will, of stewardship. We see the culmination or what is gained to us. Here's what we find in verse 17. It came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. That's interesting, isn't it? When they came out of Egypt, what led them? Fire and a pillar of cloud, right? There was the cloud and the fire. We find here a smoking furnace that was giving off its smoke, its cloud, and a burning lamp or a light of fire that passed between those pieces. We'll come back and touch on verse 17, but simply to say, in chapter 15, the stewardship is not external. The stewardship is all by himself between him and his God. It's internal. We go to chapter 16 and we understand that Abraham has his faith and really the patience of his faith in God tested. All Abraham and Sarah had to do was to wait by faith for the promised seed. Yet in chapter 16, we're going to find that even good stewards sometimes fail and they falter in following God. Sarah tries in her flesh in chapter 16 to bring about God's plan and it backfires. It not only backfires for Abraham and Sarah, but it backfires for the whole world. 
Ishmael is born. Ishmael is the father of all of the Arab nations. Look at verse number 12 in Genesis 16, and you'll find what was true of Ishmael, and it is what is still true today of all of his descendants. The Bible says he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. In other words, he's going to spread out across the whole earth. He's literally going to be everywhere. And that which will come from him, that which is in opposition to true faith in God, will be prevalent in the earth. Is Islam present in the earth? Yes. Chapter 16 of Genesis is the proof of what happens when we fail to steward our lives by faith, when we fail to walk in obedience to Almighty God. But thankfully, we have chapter 17. Look in verse number 1 of chapter 17. Genesis 17 starts with the Bible saying, And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am, what a great statement in the Bible. He says later to Moses, I am that I am. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, Before Moses I, or before Abraham was, I am. This is the great I am. And he says, I am the El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And what does he expect from a good and faithful steward? Walk before me and be thou perfect. So with this backdrop and setting... Let's now take our Bibles and go back to Genesis chapter 13 and walk through specifically Abraham's stewardship as he walked with God by faith. A faithful stewardship begins, number one in your outlines, by stewarding our relationships. Of the process that we just went through and looked at all of the various areas that Abraham was challenged to be a good steward, to be faithful in his walk with God, we begin with the fact that he was challenged to steward his relationships correctly. Faith, my friend, is useless if it isn't impactful. Stop and think on that for just a moment. What I mean, or by that I mean this, Real faith must really change us. When we talk about this, the first people to see if we have real faith in Jesus Christ is our family. They know if we're a fraud. They know if we are a fake. Abraham's lapse of faith in Egypt cost him with Sarah and with Lot. The Christian life is about stewarding our, by faith our relationship with God so that we might influence our fellow man, and that begins in the home. In, in Genesis 13, verses 3 and 4, Abraham returns back to Bethel, back to the altar, back to worship where God had desired for him to remain. It is here that his faith and relationships would be tested. It is here that we find his first interactions of faith with his family. There are two rules of faith for stewarding your family relationships. I put them in your notes there. Peace and protection. So what am I supposed to do with my spouse or with my children? What am I supposed to do as it relates to my parents or those in my family? How do I relate with them according to the Word of God? Well, Abraham actually gives us a good principle of stewardship in our families in chapters 13 and 14. First, we should live peaceably with our fellow man, the Bible says, but primarily with our family. It is distressing 
to me to see the state of the Christian home today. They are falling apart. Why? Because God's word is not powerful enough to live by it? No, it's because we haven't purposed in our heart to live by it. What Abraham comes to is a moment of crisis between him and Lot. In verses 1 through 7, there is a fight going on between his herdsmen. And in the process, Abraham could have looked at Lot and said, Hey man, this promise isn't given to you. Pound sand. Head back to Haran. Go back to Ur. I don't care about you. I don't love you. But in his family relationships, he exercised his faith. He exercised good stewardship. And he began by living and striving to live by peace. Look at verse number 8 in chapter 13. It is our key for this morning in this point. The Bible says, And Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between my herdmen and thy herdmen. Why? For we be brethren. We're family. Why are we fighting? Well, because mom and dad won't let me do what I want. Wake up, teenager. That's a bad place to live. Well, because my kids won't listen to me. Wake up, parent. That's a bad place to live. There is a way to live at peace and in peace one with another. It is our families, by the way, that observe us most closely. They see the truth of our faith or the lies that we tell ourselves and tell others. Abraham's statement in verse number 8 is one of peace, not contention. Abraham chooses the best, best path of relationship building, and that is peacefully loving and preferring others. It is truly the best way to live. Here's what Jesus said. He agreed with this. In John 13, in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I am not suggesting this morning, parents, that you let your kids act in any way they want, contrary to the Word of God. But there should not be strife in it. Once you've made your statement, if you have children that are of young age in your home, you make the statement and you live by it. If it's according to this book, you are right. We live in an age of subjectivism that tells us that Johnny's going to develop his truth by two or three and that we must let Johnny live by his truth. May I submit to you, that's nowhere taught in this book. If we're going to steward our faith in the right way, we need moms and dads who have a spiritual backbone of stewardship and do what is right by the word of God. Now, it's not always easy. I can tell you that. It's not always easy, but it is right. In fact, we find this principle of peace and then moving into protection in chapter 14. What happens? Well, the Bible tells us what happens. Lot departs. Lot never consults with God. He never seeks counsel from God. He just sees the commercial gain for himself, and off he goes. And in that departure, we find that he makes his bed with those who are ungodly and heathen. They are corrupt in every way. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, we all know about them today, don't we? It seems like in our day, they're everywhere. 
And we find that in this second chapter, chapter 14, that Lot is taken into captivity. And so we find the second element that is necessary for us, and that is to protect our family. When Abraham is told that Lot has been taken captive, he mobilizes his servants and leads a rescue of it. Now you can put the verse up there, Randy. He, he saw me in my notes, and he was in the right place. Here's what the verse says in chapter 14, and in verse number 14. And when Abram heard that his brother, that's Lot, was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. The Bible goes on in verses 17 and following and tells us that he won the victory. Here's the point. He tried to make peace and to set the pattern for Lot. And when Lot chose to go off into a life of sin and selfishness, when that which would harm him and kill him came, he said, I will step in and protect you. Moms and dads, husbands and wives in here, may we develop the spiritual backbone that is necessary to protect those under our care. Faithful stewardship is not just being saved, it's actively living that salvation in a peaceful and protective way. Parents, please listen carefully. You are the protectors of your home. You are. What you allow in your own lives, your kids know. Why was it easy for Lot not to consider God and to go down towards Sodom and Gomorrah? Because he'd just watched Uncle Abraham do the same thing in Egypt. What you allow becomes what they want to do. One of the hardest things to do as a parent is to be the bad guy who says no. But when you know those actions will harm your children, it is the right thing to say no to. It might be a movie. It might be music. It might be video games. It might be a friend. But if that is designed to harm them and to lead them away from God and the truth of their salvation... Your faith demands that you intercede. That's exactly what Abraham did. He saw that Lot was in peril and that his life was in danger. And he said, I must act. By the way, it's very interesting. Abraham's faith is now front and center. He's stewarding his faith in the right way. It says in verse number 14 that of the 318 men he took down there, they were of his own house, his own trained servants. Who were they in chapter 13? They were the same ones that were butting heads with Lot's herdsmen. You know, that guy's a jerk. All he cares about is himself. Abraham, why are we going to go rescue him? And Abraham says, because my faith demands that I intercede. It demands that I get involved. It demands that I help him. If we could get some parents that actually understood that their way of living is affecting their children and that they changed their way of living so that they might protect their children, we'd have a different church. We'd have a different world. Faithful stewardship. By the way, it's not just in blood family. We do have a statement here in Kentucky, right? Blood is thicker than water. That's a good statement. It's true. That's what we see in Abraham responding to rescue Lot. But we also have a true sense of church family. The blood of Jesus Christ binds us together. It is difficult within the church family to see a fellow believer or friend who is struggling in their walk with God, whose faith may be faltering or having a season of failure. Our responsibility, your responsibility, 
within your faithful relationships of church family is to find a way to reach out and mount a rescue effort for their souls. That is your stewarding responsibility in this family relationship. It's what God's called you to. When you see that there is an affliction or an all-out assault on a friend in the church's faith, help them, do not despise them. That's what we're called to. Abraham was faithful in stewarding his family relationships, but notice, secondly, he was faithful in stewarding his finances. In the relationship he had to finances, money did not own Abraham. Abraham had money. The Bible says in Genesis 13 that Abraham had great substance in verse number 6 and that his assets would increase in all directions in verses 14 and 15. If I told you that you could pick any stock in the market and it would go up exponentially, would you take it? And the answer is, yeah, if you could do that. That's essentially what God told Abraham here. He said, look, you go north, you look east, you look west. You look south, by the way, that's where the phrase news comes from. North, east, west, and south are covering it all. That's where we get the phrase news. Anywhere you look, it's good news. Would you take that deal? And the answer is, of course you take that deal. But the problem is, often when God's blessing comes into the Christian's life, we misuse what he entrusts to us. In Genesis chapter 14 and verse 16, Abraham brings home the increase of his efforts. In this case, it was the spoils from his battle. He had defeated the kings of the armies that had conquered almost 10 other kings. He beat them and won with 318 and a few kings from the south. And in returning, his spoils were his. It was his increase. And yet he understands from whom that increase came. Abraham put forth the effort. But it was God in Genesis 14 who gave the increase. When it comes to work, the believer in Jesus Christ, the Christian today, should always be faithful in effort. Oh, heaven help us. God forbid there is ever a Bible-believing Christian who's a member of this church who chooses not to work. Well, it's just easier if I don't work. I can collect this or they'll give me that. Oh, my goodness, what a crime. What a shame and what a ruin to a commonwealth and to a country. But most importantly, what a ruin it is to your Christian testimony if you will not work. The Bible in the New Testament says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That's what Paul told the Thessalonican believers. If he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. What Abraham understood was it was his responsibility in faith in God to put in the effort to work. That's what he was supposed to steward. But the increase was God's. He didn't know how the battle would go. He just knew he was supposed to go and rescue Lot. And in rescuing him, as he came home, there was increase. What do you do with increase? This is the first mention of tithe in the Bible. When God blesses you with abundance, what do you do with it? You get back to him. When it comes to work, the believer in Jesus Christ should always be faithful in the effort and then with whatever increase God gives to them. Your relationship with excess and increase tells a lot about your faith. It says a lot about you, how you spend that raise, how you spend those bonuses, how you spend that increase that comes from God. The richer America, by the way, has become the less that we depend upon God. Look at our nation. We don't depend upon God anymore. We depend upon capital G government now. 
Gimme, 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 gimme. What can I get? Abraham and Lot are the perfect dichotomy of how one handles excess. Lot chooses to go down to the plain because it was best for his commercial gain. He never followed God's plan or God's purpose. He never considered God's leading in any way. He considers only his gain in choosing to live in connection with godless heathens in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, however, waited on the Lord, then listened to the Lord's leading to both financial peace and personal prosperity. Abraham was faithful, stewarding his family and his financial relationships. Finally, this morning, we see he was faithful in stewarding his faith in this first thought. Stewarding our relationships. There's a relationship we have with the family. There's a relationship we have with our finances. But there's also in the life of Abraham, our relationship to God himself, our faith. All of these are externals. All of these are observable. All of these are measurable. Your relationship to worship and worshiping God matters. For Abraham, worship included an altar and offering. When Abraham returned from the state of spiritual failure in in Egypt in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, he came back to where he was closest to God. By the way, if you this morning find yourself far from God and you need to come back into a relationship or a right walk with him through stewardship, then may I say to you, do it, but come back to the place where God is. The Bible says in chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, that he came back between Bethel and Hai where the altar was. He came back to where God was. Can I tell you something this morning? If you are far off in sin, God's not going to come down to where you were. He already did that once. It was on the cross of Calvary. After salvation, when we fall away again, we must find our way back to where that place of worship is. Where God himself is. It is an important spiritual truth to know that failure in our faith, is not fatal so long as we return in repentance to God. Now, here's the truth, I think, for most Christians. We never plan to fail. Nobody ever comes to church on a Sunday morning and said, well, tomorrow I'm going to go out and do this big sin. I mean, I don't think you're that bad. Maybe you are. Maybe one of you in here this morning is plotting that as we speak. I don't know. But I don't think that's how it works. What happens is it's one little decision after one little decision after one little decision until you get so far down the line, you look back and go, ha, how did I get here? That's what happened in his failure in Egypt. But that process is to come back to where God is. The Bible says this in Micah 6 and verse 8, a just man will walk humbly with his God. In Proverbs 24 and verse 16, it says that just man who was walking humbly with his God will also fall. And when he does, he riseth up. It means when you fall, do the process of continually getting back up time after time after time after time. Get up and get back close to being with God. Abraham walked with God, not only in the valleys of defeat in Egypt, but also on the mountaintops of victory. Genesis chapter 14 tells us that he was victorious. And in that victory or in that victorious state, he still thought of his God. That's good stewardship. Sometimes in the valley of defeat, it's easy to go, I got to get back close to God up here. And that's right. The problem for most Christians is when they're successful, when they're victorious, they're on the mountaintop and they are thinking, well, I'm above God right now. I don't need him. I'm good. 
And the answer is on the mountaintop, you need God as much as you do in the valley. Abraham is a wonderful picture of good stewardship in both of those environments. He understood in that failure what the right process was to getting back with God. He also understood that when there was victory and he was on the mountaintop, that there was a walk with God that was necessary. Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24, Abraham is brought before the king of peace, Salem, and the priest of the Most High God. Now, I have preached in other sermons who I believe this is. I believe this is a Christophany. This is a personification of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Whomever this man is, he is for Abraham the representation of all that pertains to God. The steward's faithful response to meeting God or being in God's presence or being in God's place is to offer back to God through his king and priest, verse 20 and the latter half, by tithing or giving. Abraham gives tithes of all the spoil. No spiritual battle would be complete without the opportunity to praise and honor God from the victories and increase that he has given to us. What you do in this world matters. We have to live the spiritual in the temporal. And when we gain from the temporal, we give back to God in the spiritual. Do you imagine giving back to God through church as a way of giving bountifully back to God for the spiritual victories from this past week? That is the problem, by the way, in the modern world with massive indebtedness. When we live in a culture that we live and spend every penny, we are very unable to give back anything to God. It robs the believer of the ability to be bountiful to God. And some of you are saying, I don't think I can. Jessica and I, every year as we prepare our taxes, some of you are probably going through that process right now. You'll sit and you may, in the spirit of the moment, say, I wonder what I could do with an extra seven, eight, ten, fifteen thousand dollars this year that I plan to give to God. I bet I could have a little bit newer car. I suppose I could go on a little bit nicer vacation. Here's the way Jessica and I always figured out when we figure out our tax money and that which we've given to the church and what we pay in taxes. If we didn't give to the Lord, we'd probably find somebody else to give that money to. Not because we're good-natured, but because we are like you in the flesh. We like to spend it. And what we have found through the years in giving the 10% or the 15% or the 20% back to the Lord of the increase that we get, and yes, by the way, the pastor should tithe as well, when we give back at that increase, we can make the 80, 85, or 90% go a lot further than the 100% ever would. Because we're beginning to discipline our lives to worship the God that we love. So Abraham came back to the altar, and Abraham came in his faith to offer back to God. One additional note on this. Wherever God can be honored, the devil always shows up. If you study Genesis chapter 14, there's a great connection and linkage between who the king of Sodom is and if you were to go to Isaiah and to Ezekiel and find out the king of Tyre, who was the king of Tyre, there is a link to who Lucifer, Satan himself is. The king of Sodom here is clearly motivated by and possibly possessed and personifies Satan himself. He comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, hey, give me the people, you keep all the possessions. 
because the devil always wants to devour the souls of men. He doesn't want any good thing to happen. Notice verse 22 of chapter 14 or 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons, take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high. I have sworn, in other words, I have committed to him, the possessor of heaven and earth, the earth. That will I not take from a thread, even to a shoe lash. I'm not even going to touch your shoes, man. I don't want anything to do with you. And that I will not take anything that is thine. Why? The end of the verse. Lest thou shouldest say, I, the king of Sodom, I have made Abram rich. Abraham said, no, God has made me rich. God has bountifully blessed me. He has given me promises and provisions my whole life through. I don't want anything from you. He understood how to steward his relationship. Abraham tells the king of Sodom, I will not take anything from you. Here's what he says. He's quoting, I think, or at least Solomon later would write this in Proverbs 10 and verse 2. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. What a truth. It is in this relationship to faith that we come to our second main point this morning. Faithful stewardship requires that we manage our relationships well. Abraham did. Next, his life teaches us in chapters 15, 16, and 17 that we are to steward our righteousness. Stewarding our righteousness is important to God. He says where we read this morning in verse 1 of chapter 15, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Boom, right there. God just says it as clear as he can. After he's denied the devil and decided to walk with God and offer to him, proving his stewardship in faithfulness, God says, all right, that's the external. Now let's deal with the inside. There's a lot of Christians that can walk around dusting off their coat collar saying, I'm a pretty good Christian. On the outside, I look pretty good. And God says, that's fantastic. That's one element of stewardship. Now let's go inside or under the hood. Let's go inside the heart. Uh, I mean, I can fake it till I make it in front of you, but I'm not going to lie to God. Well, that's what he's going to deal with. In chapter 15, he introduces to Abraham a very deep concept. He's going to begin in chapters 15 and 16 and 17 to say, you must steward the righteousness of your own heart in a fashion that is pleasing to me. God opens up with Abraham here, not about the external things that he must manage, but the internal truths that Abraham must also steward. The question was, what about Abraham do these promises, or what, the question was, what would Abraham do, excuse me, with these promises from a righteous God? What, what would he do with them? So what, you might ask. Verse 16 gives us the answer. And he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. This verse is one of the great Bible truths in all of the Bible. It speaks of how God declares us righteous by faith in God. It is through faith in his revelation. Abraham's faith was that God would give to him all of the divine promises that God had made. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, have new life and a new relationship with God, and our faith is built on that, that he will deliver it, that he does give us new life, that he does provide the new relationship. Stewarding righteousness means, then, letter A, righteousness must be defended. 
It says that righteousness was imputed or counted unto him for righteousness. But in verse number 9, we find Abraham begins to defend his personal righteousness. Notice I did not say that he developed his own righteousness. You can't. Righteousness is given to you by God. But he has to defend that which is given to him, that which is entrusted to him. These are some great verses. Verses 9, 10, and 11 of Genesis 15 are the basis, essentially, of the book of Hebrews. Why do we have animal sacrifices? Why do we have the shedding of, bulls, of, of the blood of bulls and goats? Why is all that necessary? Because it's what God established. This is not a passage on salvation so much as it is a passage on how we manage the salvation God's given to us. He's stating a fact in verses 9 and 10, and that is that the heifer, the goat, the ram the turtle dove, and the pigeon would have to be splayed or divided and set on the middle of a trench. And in the passing of this trench, there would be a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that would pass across them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But simply to say, it was his job to make sure that sacrifice was not not altered. It was not assaulted. It was not touched. You say, how do you have proof of that, Kyle? Look in verse 11. Randy, if you can skip to just verse 11, that would be great for the board. Verse 11 says this, And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Think of that for a second. As the fowls came down, what are the Bible fowls? What is a fowl in the Bible? He said, well, I, I know there's a raven and a dove in the ark. You preached on that a couple weeks ago. I, that's correct. They're important. The dove is a picture of the Holy Spirit. But any carrion bird, any raven, any bird that would eat the flesh, that is a picture of the devil and his demonic realm. Here's what Abraham was supposed to do. He was supposed to guard in good stewardship anything of the other realm, of the realm that would assault our faith, he was to defend from that realm his own very faith, his own sacrifice. Again, he didn't earn his salvation. It was given to him. He didn't come up with this plan. God did. But God said, lay them in order. And what I want you to do is to defend your own righteousness. I want you to protect yourself. I want you to go on the attack against those that are trying to attack you. It was Abraham's responsibility to keep the carrion from his sacrificial offering. It is our responsibility that we do not let the world, the devil, or the flesh come and steal away the power of our salvation. They can't take our salvation, but they can sure make you far from God. Here's the picture. I hope you understand this as you read verses 9, 10, and 11. Here's the picture. I get the picture of like an old man with a newspaper on the front yard running kids off of it. Maybe that's not the one you get. I don't know. But essentially, bird after bird, Abraham's told, No! You get away! Leave it alone! And then another one, No, no, go, go! Get away! Boo! Right? Whatever they would yell. That's the picture. When you read verse 11, you think, Well, this is kind of a boring verse in the Bible. It seems like a crazy thing for him to do. It's very much an important verse of the Bible. Because here's why most Christians don't do that in their spiritual lives. You've gotten saved, and instead of... Chasing off those devilish, worldly, fleshly things. You're like, hey man, smorgasbord, go ahead, have a feast. 
and you're taking the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you're taking that which was given to you, you're taking the imputed righteousness of God in your life, and you are trampling it. You're making it a cheap thing. You don't care about it at all. Abraham said, no, 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 good stewardship of my own personal righteousness is I'm not letting any of that filth or garbage into my life. How much garbage have you let into your life this week, friend? You see, these messages about a man that lived 3,000 years ago are still very important to us because it's who we are. The stewardship is important because he was stewarding his righteousness, and it begins with a purposeful defense. It must be defended. Righteousness must be defended. Next, we find that righteousness is our decision. It's our decision. Look in chapter 16 and verse 1 again. We read it earlier, but we'll read it again. Now, Sarai... Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. You see the sense that she's blaming God for this. I pray thee, go unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. This was under the code of Hammurabi that was set in the Eastern Orient at that time. If you had a slave woman in your house, if you had a servant in your house, and she bore a child, it could be your child. And so Sarah is going back to the world system. She is saying, hey, look, we don't find a way to solve this problem. There's no solution. God isn't true to what he said to us. Let's just do our own thing. And in chapter 16, they fail. It's a terrible tragedy. The Bible says at the end of verse 2, And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. The story of Genesis 16 is a story of failure and faltering in his stewardship, in his management of the faith and the righteousness that God had given to him. In Genesis 15, Abraham listened to God, exercised faith, and defended his own righteousness. In Genesis 16, he listens to his wife, and he suffers a bout of unbelief. That whole scene sounds eerily similar, doesn't it, to something else in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, hath. God said, and Eve believed the serpent rather than the word that Adam had delivered from God. In verse number two, Sarah blames God for her barren condition and hints that he is not even good to them. It's exactly what Eve fell for in chapter three of Genesis. Sarah turns to the world for help. Again, I noted last week in chapter 12 of Genesis, it's the first time that Egypt is a picture of the world and it will be for the rest of the Bible as you read it. Egypt is always a type of what the world does to the believer. And we find here that Sarah turns to who? Hagar, it says, an Egyptian. Instead of turning to God for help in her decisions, She turns to the world. I find far too many Christians do that today. These lessons are timeless because they're true. The chapter is a tragic outplay of what happens when Christians fail to trust God. When Abraham and Sarah faltered in stewardship of their righteousness, the result was a broken marriage, a hated servant, and an unwanted child. The whole situation was a disaster of poor decisions. I'm going to put an aside here because I think it's important. Never lose sight of what God says about an unwanted pregnancy. This isn't the main preaching point this morning, but it is important for us to know. 
for any of our single moms or for any who have been married and been divorced or any of those who might be widowed, any of those who might have children and they're bearing them alone, there is hope and help in chapter 16 and verse 11. It has always been a wonderful passage to come back to because the question is or could be asked at this point, what should Hagar do with the baby? Nobody wants it. Why don't we just get rid of it? The Bible says this in verse 11, The angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son. It doesn't say abort the son. It says bear the son. But he's going to be hated. He's not going to be wanted. He's going to be a problem. God knows these things. Whether they're true or not in the emotion of the moment, God knows these things. Look what he continues and says, And thou shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard Thy affliction. Do you know what the one requirement for the church, well, there's two requirements that the church has to have so that we exercise pure religion, and that is that we are good, kind, and faithful to the fatherless and to the widow. That's good stewardship. Would to God as a church, we will always look for those and be mindful of those who bear that affliction for whatever reason. Hagar, it seems, was innocent in this cause, and God was quick to honor her. Righteousness must be defended. Righteousness is always our decision, but finally, let her see, righteousness will be defining. How you act will define you. It's how God defines you, and it's how others know you. Chapter 17 is wonderful. Twelve times in this chapter, he uses the phrase, my covenant or everlasting covenant. What he begins to do is, look, stop trying to do the stewardship in your own flesh and just trust in my promises. You got salvation for free. Abraham, there's no reason I should have picked you over anybody else, but I did. And I provided you a promise and a land, and he's given to the believer a life that we can live. And so instead of trusting in our own strength, what he does in chapter 17 is remind us of who he is and what we trust in, him. I am the almighty God, he begins by saying. He also says, I will a lot. Look at verse 2. I will make my covenant. The middle of verse 2 will multiply thee exceedingly. Skip down to verse 6, I will make thee exceeding fruitful. I will make nations of thee. Verse 7, I will establish. Verse 8, I will give. The end of verse 8, I will be. If you keep reading, you will find God continually saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. That's a wonderful truth in the walk we have with God. Let God do His work. God authenticates authenticates Abraham's stewardship in this chapter 17. Abraham's faith brings from God two things, a change of name and nature. The defining fact of faith is that it changes who we are with God. First, he changes their names. He's going to do this later with Jacob as well. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, there is a process of what he will do, but he culminates by saying this in verse 5, Neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. If you look down in verse number 6, or excuse me, not verse number 6, if you look down to where Sarah is in verse number 15, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. According to the historians and the 
etymologist of the world, Abram means high or exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. In other words, God's changing his name before he's actually done the work. We talk about stewarding faith. All right, God, I'll change my name. You're going to change it? All right, you can change it. My job is to just keep following you like I've been following you and being obedient like I've been obedient and stop faltering where I'm faltering? Yes, okay, I can do that. If you'll do that, then your name is changed. Reminds me of the old hymn, We have a new name written down in glory. Yes, it's mine. Sarai is said to mean contentious. Sarah means princess. I think Zach knew that when he married her. Amen, he says. By the way, the Sarah of the Bible later would become a contentious princess as well when she laughs in her tent. But the point is, that's her new name. Their new names were a preparation for the new blessing about they're entering into a new home and a new land. Only the grace of God could take two heathens from Ur of the Chaldees and turn them into God's kings and queens. But he also changes their nature. This is the last thought that we have before we close this morning. He says this in verse 9, and I'm not going to read it. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man, child, among you shall be circumcised. Now, we are in polite company, so we will not discuss the process or procedure of what circumcision is. Simply to say, it was a painful cutting away of the flesh on the males of the family. It literally was taking their flesh and cutting it away. It was a change of their nature. By the way, this is also the first mention of this process in the Bible or procedure. Nowhere does the Old Testament teach that circumcision saved a man. It is but the outward symbol of the covenant promise between God and men. It was to remind those men of the inward circumcision or cutting away of the heart and the flesh of the heart that accompanies true salvation. This is not him being saved. This is him marking that he wants to be a steward of the faith that God's given to him. By the way, it's why we practice baptism today. It is an outward sign of an inward change that we have committed to. The ritual of circumcision itself in the Old Testament was to be performed on the eighth day, according to verse number 12. It was the eighth day that Christ arose from the grave. The Bible says it was the first day of the week. There's seven days in a week, so on the first day of the next week is the eighth. Eight in the Bible is the number of resurrection, of new life. And so we find he is marking that he is wanting and willing to notify the whole world of what inwardly he believes. So in closing this morning, Abraham is a study in stewardship. His walk with God was marked by great faith with momentary lapses. He's a flesh and blood human being just like us. The hope this morning is that we see this man and find ourselves somewhere in his journeying. We are to steward our relationships and our righteousness for His glory, just as Abraham did. The external and internal expressions of our faith, our relationships with our family, our finances and our faith must be stewarded for God's glory. And when we do so, it will be for others' good. Our righteousness will be defining. It will note who we are. People will say, there's something different about you. 
There's something different about that church you go to. There's something about the way you talk. There's something different about the way you walk. There's something different about the way you act. That is what it means to have a defining element of righteousness in you. But that element will not be in you if you are not willing by choice, by your decision, to defend it. It doesn't accidentally happen. Hey, I accidentally ended up a great Christian. Doesn't happen that way. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Abraham's life teaches us. Father, I pray this morning as we